0: to everyday Holiness, a faith indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is your host Dan Allen, the Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And I'm pleased to welcome you again or for the first time to our podcast where we talk to members of the Notre Dame family about their lives, important decision moments and their call to holiness. And as we wrap up our sixth season this year, I'm pleased to welcome Father Matt Kazora to the podcast. Father Matt is a Holy Cross priest. He graduated from Notre Dame in 2005 with his undergrad, and then Master Divinity in 2011, and he's actually, as we'll hear, pursuing his law degree here in the next couple of years. So, Father Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. So glad to have you with us. If we could start by having you tell us some about the important elements of your upbringing, that'd be a great
1: place. Yeah, right. So I'm from Indiana originally. My hometown is Marion, Indiana, about two hours south of school. My folks are from Chicago, my dad's from Chicago, my mom is from the Phoenix area, and uh, they settled here in Indiana after undergrad, Arizona State, it was a halfway place between their graduate programs, Okay. and been there ever since, and raised myself, I'm the oldest of five kids, I've got four younger sisters, just (laughs) did two of their weddings this year, so they're all happily married, I got seven, nieces and nephews, and family's really grown.
0: That's great. What was that like being the oldest brother
1: and then having four sisters? Kind of a unique dynamic. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm glad I was at that end of it. I've talked to some guys who are at the other end, the youngest, with four or more older sisters. So my sisters are great. They really have, I have to give them credit kind of for me and the person who I am today. You know, keeping me honest and, you know, learning how to cooperate and work together on a bunch of things. I think, frankly, too, like having a woman's perspective, in this case, four plus my mom, right? There's a lot of that in our home, which was great and uh, something I really appreciate today. And not to overdo it, but I think that's made me comfortable with a lot of different people in a lot of different settings. I'm grateful for that background.
0: Yeah. A little different than a seminary They
1: tease me that I came to the seminary to get brothers. That's right. It's <laughs> true. I've got hundreds now and now I have four wonderful brothers in law. Right, so right. it's all working out. <laughs>
0: That's good. All comes around. If you could share about your parents
1: relationship and marriage, what
0: how was that a model of, of faith and fidelity
1: for you? Yeah, so their dating and marriage might not be maybe a typical priest's uh, parents' background. Uh-huh. I don't know what, if there is a typical one. So my mom did not grow up Catholic. Okay. My grandparents and great-grandparents would have loosely had Buddhist beliefs. They okay. were of Chinese background. Okay. Though, you know, had different experiences with different Protestant Christian traditions. I believe my mother's babysitter, who had a big inf- influence in her life, belonged to the Assemblies of God. Hmm. It was from the southern part of the United States. My mom grew up with a little bit of that, attended a Lutheran church for a bit. So it really... Uh, amalgam of different backgrounds, mostly of Protestant Christianity there, uh, and my dad is from the South Side of Chicago, very much Catholic guy <laughs> in the wool. It was kind of a mixed marriage. They like to tease in our family. My grandma and grandpa basically lived across the street from each other in Chicago, but one was on the Polish side of town, or of the street, uh-huh. with the uh, Polish parish and everything there. Right. The other was the Irish, okay. the Irish parish, and uh, they should never meet. Right was kind of the idea. So it came from that rich background and at least what my mom and dad tell us that when they were in college and started, they started dating at the end of college, looking at grad school, looking to get married, they knew they wanted faith to be a part of their marriage. I don't think my dad, at least the way he tells it, was really set on it needing to be Catholicism. Okay. And they had kind of reached that point in their lives and my mom was looking at that and as she learned more about Catholicism, she really was interested and mm. in, wanted to do the RCIA program to become Catholic. agreed to get married in the Catholic Church and you know they have been just wonderful as models for myself and my sisters through all these years you know the way they work together the way they share responsibilities as you know Christian marriage kind of lived out through them obviously raising a bunch of kids my mom worked until I was born. She worked in mental health care, working with folks who have permanent developmental disabilities that so they could live on their own, have some independence. Okay. My dad also works in mental health care more with folks who are suffering from addiction or depression and other mental illness in that sense. So you know, certainly caring for other people was a huge part of our family growing up. But I brought that up to say that my mom was a stay-at-home mom with us. And so she just spent so much of her life and energy with us kids, chase us around, take us to different events and whatnot. Mm -hmm. My dad, too, working full-time, but still coaching soccer, for example, for each of the kids. That was really amazing. But when it comes to the faith practice itself, I cannot remember a time as a family growing up when we prayed the rosary together or went to adoration. Mm -hmm. Um, Those just weren't part of our experiences. Mm -hmm. Though every single Sunday, sometimes to my chagrin, we were at Mass. And that meant even like on vacation or traveling, we would find a place to go and that really stuck with me every night especially when i was younger you know saying bedtime prayers Mm -hmm. um that was an important thing and and those no matter who we prayed for you know you list off all the people you could think of (laughs) kind of stay up, trying to stay up delay the inevitable but we would always end and for those who don't have enough Hmm. and that was a really important thing in our family caring for those who don't have enough and i think that instilled in me an interest a, a real love for the parts of scripture the parts of the gospel especially where Jesus himself cares for those who are poor and marginalized and and calls us to do that. And I would say, along with weekly mass, my folks would encourage us to volunteer in the community, take us to the local Catholic food bank, ring bells for Salvation Army, whatever it might be to volunteer. Uh, And that was really how we lived out our faith.
0: As you got a sense of your own faith and deepening it, what were some important elements of that that you remember as a kid?
1: I think, honestly, Dan, like, going to Mass was not thrilling. It wasn't what uh, (laughs) fed me, and it kind of went because I had to go. You know, when I started to get a little bit older, middle school, into high school, I was so blessed. A lot of my friends belonged to the same parish. Okay. And in my hometown, actually, it's, you know, the center of the Bible Belt, and at least, you know, generations before I was there, there was some pretty intense anti-Catholic feelings there in town. Now, I didn't experience that. I, I really loved my community and continue to, but we certainly aren't this, like, overwhelming kind of cultural majority in town. Sure, And yet there were a lot of kids my age in my class in school that were all going to confirmation prep. You know, we call it different things. Sunday Religious Ed, CCD, and it changed names during those times. But being there with those friends really helped me to kind of look forward to those catechetical classes Mm -hmm. and maybe see them at church, that kind of thing. So it was friends. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Well, and that's great to to know because – Obviously, God uses all the people in our lives and, and calls us at different times in our lives based on, you know, how do we become attracted to the faith? It's Sometimes it's by witnessing those we look up to or those who are peers and friends who are also taking it seriously. Did you have any inclination in high school, young adulthood, that in
1: thinking about priesthood or did that come along later? So I just had my 20th high school reunion Okay, and I stayed in really good touch with my high school friends and we still were laughing like... Matt, you're a priest? It was just the most <laughs> foreign thing to any of us in high school in those days. Myself, Prime, among them. The only thing I could think of, we had a confirmation big day for the diocese we all went down near Indianapolis and you know it was a big group and they had some talk by a priest and you're supposed to like shut your eyes and raise your hand if you're interested and they get you some materials or whatever okay I was like I don't really know and I kind of looked around and nobody else's really hand was up maybe a couple of guys and I just kind of popped my hand up you know and they came around and gave me the stuff and so I don't know if I put my name or whatnot but I just got this deluge of stuff <laughs> in those days in the mail There was no email. Right, right And it was just overwhelming I was okay. like heck no Wait, never I'm out Forget that, I shouldn't even raise my hand. <laughs> no, I had a great experience in high school and then into college. I was able to date, you know, and get a, a sense of, you know, that kind of preview, if you will, of married life sure. and, and cooperation, working together as a family in that sense, and to work as well in the summers in high school. I did a year of volunteer service after college. All that to get a glimpse at how God might be calling me. But priesthood, you know, I looked up to the priests we had in our hometown. It was but it was often one diocesan priest, mm-hmm. often an older guy. Mm-hmm. I went to public school. We only had Catholic school through, I think, fifth grade. Maybe now it's in eighth grade. But okay. I went to public my whole time. So I only saw him on Sunday. Okay. So it wasn't really that, like, I could see myself in those shoes. Yeah. So it wasn't something I was um, aspiring to. So, yeah, it really wasn't anything kind of growing up. I just lived a different kind of life. on looking at sports and my academics, my friends, living out my faith, feeling called to a, a life as a married man.
0: Sure, sure. Okay, well, that... Uh, as you said, there's uh, not any particular prescribed path towards priesthood or, or any other vocation. So it's, I appreciate your, your candor there. What about coming to Notre Dame? How did that
1: develop and come about? So coming to Notre Dame itself, nobody from my family had been to Notre Dame. Like like I described, we're a Catholic family. I was interested in business. Notre Dame has, and in those days certainly had also an excellent business program. Despite those two wonderful facts, it just wasn't on my radar. Mm-hmm. I think to this day, it's, you know God's hand and divine providence making it happen. There's a scholarship program through the Eli Lilly Foundation. Every county, I, when I was there, one person would get a full ride scholarship anywhere in the state. Wow! Uh, you know to prevent brain drain, stick around. Sure, sure. And I was all set to go to IU. A bunch of my friends, we'd all go there together, have a great time. And I, I was awarded the scholarship. I applied for it and got it. Hmm. And I think in my you know business mind high school days i was like well let's see what's the most expensive place to go to <laughs> and i'll tell you it's about half of what it is today <laughs> yeah, uh, but right. it's still but the answer was notre dame and i was like yeah it's a catholic school and the football's great and the business program is excellent like let's do it mm-hmm. and so that's what brought me to notre dame okay but i didn't know the fight song <laughs> i didn't i maybe visited campus once maybe sure. after i got accepted before i stepped foot on campus as a freshman myself and so everything was just like jarring and mm-hmm. different. One of my friends from high school also came, but she was in a women's dorm on the other side of campus, so I didn't really see her very much. And so it was just there. And what really made me feel at home, and I think what leads even into my kind discernment of religious life and priesthood was the residence hall. Mm-hmm. My first encounter with the Holy Cross Religious was Father David Scheidler, rest mm-hmm. in peace. He yes. died this last year. Yeah. Uh, just an amazing man, an amazing priest, also from Indiana, so we okay. connected on yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> but just full of energy and enthusiasm. I remember, you know, my mom and dad and I pulled up behind the dorm, got my stuff, and you get just rushed by all <laughs> these guys, and they don't know you, and they're going to take your stuff upstairs for you. You don't have to lift a finger. And Father Dave comes out, Welcome to Notre Dame and to St. Edward's Hall. And it was that tenor, that beginning, that really carried all the way through. And it really made me feel comfortable at Notre Dame and kind of fall in love with it despite not having a deep connection otherwise. Mm-hmm. So that was just really huge and and opened me up to whatever else Notre Dame had to offer. So going through, I was an accounting major. That's what I graduated in as well. Long story short. My junior year, the summer before, I did one of the summer service learning projects. Sure. Through the Center for Social Concerns. I was assigned to live out in New York City, in Manhattan, to work at a Jesuit high school. It was a great program. For boys from underprivileged backgrounds in middle school, if they completed this program, they could go to one of the Jesuit high schools, automatic acceptance. and Mm. really just like a timeline, a time warp, I guess, in the American dream. It's just an amazing program. Reach for Regis is the name of that. But I lived with Jesuit priests. That was the living assignment. And I had no idea what I was getting into and what that would be like and how they would be any different from the priest I had growing up. Mm -hmm. And that was, again, just an amazing experience to... See religious life. Now, I'd seen it at Notre Dame through Holy Cross priests, but whatever reason, I wasn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. But to live there with them was really great. And they were involved in such wonderful ministries. You know, I would go to mass. One of them would preside. But their day job would be in the president of this high school or a scholar in 15th century French literature. One guy wrote screenplays for British TV. <laughs> it was a really amazing ministry. I didn't know you could do the sacramental and these other ministries and in, in professions. So that was really fascinating to me. And to see them living together was also just great to see you wouldn't just maybe as a priest be living by yourself, which for me, coming from a family of five kids, like, wasn't really attractive. Mm-hmm. So that really, I think, you know, got my, my wheels turning in my head. I do remember, like, the last day I was there, they were having a big dinner or something. I think it was actually the Feast Day of St. Ignatius, so July 31st, and there was, there was a big celebration. And somebody said oh, well, Matt, like, you were considered joining the Jesuits? And I was like, it just turned me off again, like, the deluge of letters, right? And you can see a couple of the other guys groan, like, the guy had overplayed it, right? You're just like, too much, too too soon. And I was like, oh, no, 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 right? And, you know, and then the next day I left, this is interesting, I left to study abroad in Spain. Hmm. I left right from JFK, the airport, and went over to Europe. And there, I was in Toledo, Spain, the, the old capital, medieval capital of Christian Spain. And the cathedral I walked by every day, Literally was a thousand years old. Wow. And you have the Mozarabic rite, so part of our Catholic family of mm-hmm. a different way of celebrating the Mass. Yeah. And just to see the breadth and the age, the antiquity of our faith. Like I said, I'm from Indiana, not particularly Catholic part of Indiana. To see that was just astounding. And I mm-hmm. like history anyway. So that really turned me on, got me excited about my faith. In Toledo, too, to this day, but especially in 2003 when I was there, despite how Europe has largely not continued to be as Catholic as it once was Mm -hmm. that's not the case with Toledo you saw younger priests and sisters around when I'd go to the neighborhood parish young people there at the parish that was inspiring as well I had all these things kind of churning in my head I come back to Notre Dame for my spring semester junior year I'm taking like 24 credit hours and it's the meat of the accounting program Not really loving the classes, working too hard. I'm living in a situation with six other of my friends, roommates, who were great buddies now, right, but right. not a lot of like personal space. It's <laughs> a lot going on there. And, man, Dan, I hit like kind of a, a low point. I would say it was probably maybe my lowest point in okay. college, okay. just kind of wondering who I am and why I'm doing this. You know, I, I suppose I did the accounting degree because I like numbers and I like how those things work together. But honestly, for a job, a lucrative job, and realizing I didn't want to spend my life that way, mm. and I know you know a lot of my family are accountants. and It's okay. a great profession, yeah. a great calling, but it wasn't going to be for me. Yeah. So two things happened in my dorm in St. Edward's Hall. Bob Dowd, Father Bob Dowd, mm-hmm. was our priest in residence. Okay. And I had seen him, you know, say mass and stuff, and I just knocked on his door and like, can we talk? And just to say what I just said to you, and he gave me a book by uh, Cardinal Bernadine, mm-hmm. um, and it's called Instrument of Peace, I believe, you know, off of the prayer of St. Francis. Sure talking about what's enough and what's most important and putting ourselves in God's hands. That book was really inspiring, talking to Father Bob. And then I went on what we used to call a Notre Dame encounter retreat. Sure. Loosely based on a Kairos model, if people are familiar with that. But really a motive, peer-run retreat. And that really was the right time at the right thing to kind of crack open my shell to kind of have this experience with God and kind of reevaluate. So those things came together my spring semester junior year. And I really did start to think about if I was called to religious life and perhaps priesthood. Mm. Religious life, especially seeing Father Bob and then Father Tom Eckert was my rector at that point. Mm-hmm. And I had Father Mark Porman as a professor sure. in theology. Um, seeing their wonderful work and then their community life, especially, mm-hmm. which was just really attractive. And I was kind of thinking to myself, like, wow, if I could do this and be a married guy, like, that'd be great. Like, <laughs> This is what I would do. Yeah. And so it was just getting closer and closer. So just a little bit more in the future, the summer before my senior year. I did an accounting internship in Texas, and just the parish that was close by was run by Dominican priests. Okay. And these guys were outstanding preachers, as their order of preaching might say. (laughs) And I was really inspired by them, and I didn't think they were no dummies. They might have sensed I was thinking about religious life. And, uh, you know, they said, oh, you know, after Mass next week, we're going to have a bunch of guys over, you know, for lunch. Like, all right, I don't have to cook obviously it was like a little come and see right, kind of yeah, discernment right, yeah. which I was unaware of but it was great <laughs> and they were so friendly and just wonderful men and I loved their community life this mm. part that I had seen you was know, is, is fueling the life of the Holy Cross guys really lived out beautifully for them even to the point where they dress alike right? in mm-hmm. their habit mm-hmm. and I just really was attracted to that and really saw that as a really a good gift and a way to serve and so go to the senior year thinking about priesthood and marriage and how these things might come together I wasn't ready at that point to make any kind of commitments sure. to these things, um, but I had these wonderful examples. The Jesuits in New York, mm-hmm. especially with their ministry, the Dominicans in Texas, especially their community life, and the Holy Cross guys who in a lot of ways combined those two things, great community life and wonderful diverse ministry mm-hmm. with a lot of genuine joy. And so this was becoming more and more of a thing. So I did a year of volunteer service after college, still thinking about marriage, and, but knowing I didn't want to do like for-profit accounting in a way that wouldn't leave room for you know like i said in that early prayer as a kid for those who don't have enough
0: right Um, right
1: so i had an opportunity to work with a nonprofit housing builder Mm -hmm. in california just an amazing group coachella valley housing coalition who in some ways operates like um habitat for humanity Mm -hmm. in the sense that families put in their sweat equity as their down payment if you will uh and then they work on the home, and then they get a chance to have their own home. I hoped to be on the roof, like, hammering nails and helping out. (laughs) They're like, son, you have an accounting degree. Like, you're going to be in the office. Oh, So (laughs) I did budget work and uh, grant writing, and uh, it was just an amazing way to see an accounting degree put to work in an industry where you're well compensated Mm -hmm. uh, and being in nonprofit work. And it just seemed like this perfect answer. Like, Like, okay, I can do this and be a married guy, help other people and support a family. Sure. And yet, Dan, like, it wasn't enough. Yeah. You know, I was really enjoying the conversations with uh, the priests in the parish who were Holy Cross priests as well. Uh Um, And then also, too, in my free time, like after work, I would teach English as a second language and volunteer to help teach a citizenship class for those who were, you know, attempting to become American citizens. And, you know, I really loved that kind of stuff. That's Mm. what really kind of got me going. Mm. And, again, continuing these conversations with especially Holy Cross guys getting to know more about their life just seemed like a great fit and a great thing to at least try. And honestly, I, the first day of seminary, I was like, I'm just going to go in. I'm sure I'll hate it. Yeah. And after however many you know days, minutes, seconds, like, I'll be out of here. I'll, uh, we'll okay. answer this question okay. and move on and look at marriage. And, you know, I can talk about more later if you'd like. But each year, for me, that was a six-year program. Each year, I reapplied to continue. They reaccepted me if you will it yeah. was that complete freedom sure. you could leave before then but there was that decision point sure. each year and each year there was always something I wanted to dive deeper into a question I wanted answered some other reason to continue yeah. and it was it felt good enough to keep going there's some years where it's like 90% yes this is great other years where it's like 50.22 <laughs> you know, very small but enough to keep going yeah. and to the end there when I'm wrapping up the Master of Divinity where I was getting ready to petition for final vows in the community just feeling like if I was in a dating relationship for six years mm. and it was this good, you know, I'd be looking for a ring to get engaged. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so it was trying, kind of drawing that analogy. I felt free and, and called.
0: Yeah, you're always going to have doubts and, and or at least questions about, well, I, I don't know exactly how this is going to go, but when you look at the whole of, of what's transpired, there's a lot of goodness there and a lot of confirmation there. I want to return, though, if we could, to that that low moment where... You'd kind of seen your life going in this direction. You'd been working on the accounting degree, and all of a sudden you realize that this this may not be it. I think people encounter that in in discernment, whether it's not just priesthood or marriage or religious life, but even in college majors or careers uh, where they thought they were going to be an engineer, but they really like their history class or whatever the case may be. What would you say to people who are kind of in the face of that low thinking, wait a minute, I thought my life was going to go this way, but I feel my heart being pulled another way?
1: Yeah, I think at least in that moment, I realized life is too short to just be miserable. And frankly, I was miserable Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to just keep plowing ahead for its own sake. Yeah. And if I was going to look at other people's expectations or expectations I had set on myself, not from my genuine passion. That would be the only reason to do it. And I suppose I was afraid in some ways, too, to let people down. But as I realized I didn't have to do that, I was pleasantly surprised. People, my parents were wonderful all along the way, but start with them, friends from high school, others who, you know, had said, like, wow, like, you know, when you finished 2nd our class in high school, you got this scholarship, you're at Notre Dame, like, of course you can do great, wonderful, phenomenal things. When I said, you know, I'm looking at like nonprofit accounting, it was amazing to see how supportive people were. Uh-huh. People were like, what you, you're, you're dumb. Like well, You're throwing it all away. What's going on? <laughs> Inside, I kind of felt that, right? Like, okay. you know, before going to to Europe to study abroad, you know, having had, you know, amazing dating relationships and, you know, chances to do well in school and job prospects. Like, it's kind of like the dream everybody always says, or I thought I wanted mm-hmm. to have, right? Mm-hmm. And then that it wasn't fulfilling. It, it was a big risk. Mm. And what was affirming as I started to bring up these doubts to people who knew me and cared about me to hear their affirmation. Mm-hmm. That really was affirming and making that choice mm-hmm. and i would say to anybody if there's people who really do care about you in your life if you feel like you can raise those doubts and those different options to them you know they may say like you know, i see you get a lot of joy in accounting or mm-hmm. as you mentioned engineering mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that might be a, an affirmation to stick where you're at mm-hmm. right But they're like wow no i've just seen you come alive in these history classes you never stop talking about whatever you're reading whatever yeah. that different thing yeah. might be listen to those other voices and i think you'll find that other affirmation if it's somebody who's really there looking out for your best interest mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. yeah we've a lot of people have said that talking to those who love you and know you well can you give you that good outside perspective you did discuss that maybe in high school people wouldn't have guessed that you'd become a priest and kind of chuckling it God's sense of humor I suppose in that what was people's reaction not only as you were thinking about holy cross but you applied and got in and you were in formation. How do you remember people's different reactions to that?
1: Yeah, I'll start off with those same friends from high school. As much as we laugh about it, you know, when we just kind of sit down and, and just, you know, talk more frankly and seriously, they're like, you know what, it's not that far of a stretch, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We knew your faith was important to you, right? And that you like to help other people, mm-hmm. right? And you felt joy in that. That's what priests do, and, and they see that, right? Yeah. So it's not that far of a stretch after all. I will say, too, that... Um, In Like where I grew up and maybe just the people I knew, we didn't have a lot of examples of priests. Mm -hmm. So I found in seminary, I was doing a lot of explaining. I had to learn a lot myself. Like what is religious life opposed to diocesan priesthood? Brothers and priests within religious life. And then Holy Cross, you know, I'd have to start with some kind of focal point, like the Dominicans or the Jesuits, let's say. Somebody who's better known Yeah, and say, you know, we're kind of like that. But then explain Holy Cross's particular background and charisms, the ways we serve. There's a lot of explaining to do. And then some of that too was the vows in particular uh the vows celibacy yeah just kind of a shock to a lot of people right. a lot of questions there <laughs> it's the kind of thing you just meet somebody you're out with friends at a restaurant or a bar and uh, next thing you know this perfect stranger is, is asking you questions about your sex life or what you're interested in and like, okay sir i just Sorry. met you like <laughs> yes. i don't know like all right we'll talk about <laughs> okay. it and having to be comfortable with that right yeah. i don't think that in any way but certainly in a celibate life we can repress our sexuality and mm-hmm. you know our, our natural emotions and desires right But to be able to articulate why you feel called to that, how you find joy and support and emotional needs are being met in religious life, from friends and family, obviously in a non-physically sexual, romantic way. Sure. And then also, too, so like how you would channel those, you know, natural and beautiful energies and emotions, Mm -hmm. I would say, for the good of the ministry. Sure, sure. Um, There. And so we can talk about all three of the vows if you'd like, but I think all of them do kind of boil down, I'll use celibacy as the example, that... I thought, and a lot of people who I was talking to thought of the vows, especially Celestia, as giving up. Right. Sacrificing marriage, children, that romantic intimacy. Sure. That part, which is beautiful and and helps our church grow and thrive and our families do well, Mm -hmm. right? It's a a great thing. But sacrificing for, you know, God or this kind of ministry, but always that giving up kind of thing. And there certainly is a a lot of sacrifice there, and that's good and holy in its own way. But I really was inspired by different writers who talk about it as being freed for, mm-hmm. right? So again, not to belittle any other vocation, but in my celibate life, by not primarily being concerned for the the, the well-being of my wife and children, hypothetically, mm-hmm. right, that allows me to just be there for whomever comes to my door. Mm-hmm. So I was a rector of a dorm, actually two different dorms over five years here at Notre Dame, and I like to use that as an example you know, I had 103 men in Carroll Hall, 220 men in Dunn Hall, mm-hmm. and whoever knocked on my door, like, that's who I needed to be there for, right? right. It wasn't like I needed to just choose between putting the kid to bed or, or my wife or whatever that might have been, and it was just, I was there for them. And the same way, my first assignment as a priest was in Mexico, mm-hmm. and it was a very difficult time in northern Mexico, 2011. There was a lot of violence related there. I didn't need to think about a place that would be good for my wife to find friends or schools for my kids, or even the danger. Safety
0: the areas. Yeah, right. yeah, so yeah. Just
1: dive in there. So <laughs> it freed me for that ministry. And that's what I try to explain to people.
0: Yeah, I can see that. And certainly my own life, uh, married and have kids that there are certain things that are are too much or I can't be a part of because I have to be attentive to those vows that I've made and and seeing the. The wisdom sometimes in the church of saying that, especially those called to priestly ministry or religious life, how they're just able to be so available to people, sometimes at a moment's notice, because we don't know when suffering will will happen in our lives or when we'll really, you know, for you knocking on Father Bob's door. I mean, you were one of those people that he was able to love and be available to because of who he was. So thanks, thanks for sharing that if we could go to the kind of important moments of final vows or an ordination i want to touch on those and then we can get into your life as a vow religious and priest but in sort of those final stages of your formation what were the important moments that
1: stay with you now that there are real treasures to you so where we take our final vows and our ordained priests is at the basilica of the sacred heart here at notre dame i had been ministering in monterey mexico in the north of mexico uh, just in a very different setting of poverty and violence and a lot of preventable illness. So it was a big juxtaposition, like just a change in scenery, to come up back to Notre Dame, which is very much home for me too. So the beauty there and surrounded by friends and family, that was amazing. So when I went through seminary, we started off with six men and by the end, there were two of us. But my classmate, Father Brian Ching, did a pastoral year, so he got ordained and took final vows the year behind me. Mm. So it was just me there. Okay. And so my sisters accused me of being the priestzilla, right? It was all about me. <laughs> I had to choose all my music or whatever, which is, I, guess, I suppose, is true. Uh, but then I met. nobody like, left. There's nobody left. And so I got to choose. You know, all, I, there were no limits on my invitation list, right? So, okay great high school friends came out and some of my old teachers even from kindergarten came and yeah. a lot of family just being surrounded by all these people who loved and care about me was great and then so back in the basilica having them all there as part of the uh ordination and i believe the final vows as well you lie prostrate on the floor so you're laying flat face sure. down on the floor there as the rest of the congregation sings and prays the litany of the saints, asking the saints to intercede for you. And it's this very humbling humbling moment, and you're right there. It's just like this one bit of calm where you can kind of just, like, dive into it. Otherwise, like, you know, the camera's on you or whatever, right? right? You're just trying to remember what you're supposed to do. Uh, But you can relax and be in that moment. And then also, too, there's a little bit of a reflection, too, that whenever my time on earth ends here in my province of Holy Cross, that's where we have our funerals, and that's Mm -hmm. where the casket is, too, the exact same spot where you've just laid face down, turning your life over to God, right? So there's a a bookend to that. And it's a comfort, too, to not be afraid of death, not be intimidated by it. Just acknowledge it's a reality for all of us who are living and looking forward to being with those who have now hopefully entered into eternal life. And there's even a little comfort, like, I know where they're going to bury me, right over there (laughs) uh, in that cemetery here on campus. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, putting those things together, those really stick with me. And the last thing I'll say with the ordination, there's this beautiful tradition in in Holy Cross where – your fellow priests come around and lay on hands after the bishop has done the same. Yeah. They play this song, this piece from the movie, The Mission, Gabriel's oboe. Uh-huh. this beautiful piece. And, you know, all these guys are laying hands on you. And you just kind of feel that support, this long line, which we, you know, with the bishop stretching all the way back to Jesus instituting right. the priesthood and, and his mission in Peter and the, the apostles. And you just feel that support. And it's another just wonderful time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. As a spectator, some of those, are, you know, just someone who's part of the congregation, those are just, it's very moving, and you have this sense of, this isn't an easy call. there, There is uh, there is sacrifice, there is joy, as in anything, but you feel really encouraged for uh, the young men who are there because it seems like, well, there's, there's quite a support network here. There's that true sense of, of brotherhood that you see, and so it's inspiring to all of us. So, as a priest, you've mentioned a couple of your ministries, but where did you start out? What did you learn about yourself as, as sort of a very young priest?
1: So, my first assignment was in northern Mexico. Uh, we have a big parish there, home to 30,000 people. Wow. My hometown is 30,000 people. Wow. <laughs> so, it's like as if everybody goes to the same church. So There are a lot of different masses. So, the metropolitan area, I think, is between three and four million people. Okay. And we were in one of the close-by communities, like not... Monterey proper, but Guadalupe, right next to it. Pretty industrial, pretty urban. And you could walk from one end to the parish bounds to the other, Uh um, and it was very densely populated. So we had 16 masses every Sunday. Wow. And uh, so there were four priests there, split up four at a time unless somebody was sick, and you took on more, right? And I don't think in that time I baptized just one baby usually there'd be one certain mass like the 1215 and everybody who had their babies would so be like a dozen or more babies huh. there and you're doing that and i can only think of maybe one or two weddings where i had just one couple huh. you know there'd be four or five couples sharing a mass right. for their own wedding right wow. and they literally you have little name tags to make sure the right people get married to the right people <laughs> that's right um so i say i share that just to say like wow what a way to start out just like trial by fire and just like repetition if nothing else right having to pivot at a moment's notice also too with funerals there they don't really have a tradition of embalming people mm, mm-hmm. so it's a quick turnaround okay someone dies right away and you're doing the liturgical part really in the funeral home and it isn't really customary to go to the cemetery so you're doing all of it there and then you'll do a, a mass like a, a month and then on every anniversary later for the family but you know you get a call so-and-so just died you know it's two o'clock in the afternoon can you come at four Wow! And like, of course, you know, give me the address. And you pop over there. You may or may not know them, right? And you spend a little bit of time comforting them, consoling them, learning about the person who's died. And uh, you, you perform what you can for them and with them. Hmm. Um, so all those things were just an amazing time to learn how to be a priest. Like I mentioned, the situation there was very unsteady and had its own risks. So seeing the value of faith in those difficult situations, um, as just one example, there were a lot of people who had been victims of violence. Maybe their family member had been killed or they themselves have been kidnapped. And so trying to get them to heal uh, psychologically, frankly, mm. there is a lot of suspicion in the parish about psychologists and psychology, mm-hmm. but a lot of trust in the church. And so we were able to be a bridge to bring in psychologists, particularly psychologists of faith, to come to the church, invite people to maybe for the first time in months, leave their home to come to church, you know, and we'd have... Times where they could hear like a big presentation, perhaps meet one-on-one and start to have that healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so faith was a big part of that. Mm-hmm. And it was just amazing to see. So I had lots of jobs there all at the same time. One was to work in the parish, as I described. I was running our introductory stage of our seminary program there. Hmm. So I was working with young men who wanted to be Holy Cross religious and priests. So just like training them up, everything from like, this is how you do laundry, right? Very, yeah. yeah. very basic to getting them to school and their academics and their faith formation developed. And then my third role there was as the vocation director. Hmm. So I was traveling around Mexico, talking with young men and their families about the guy who might feel called to Holy Cross, putting together like social media things, other outreach, but you know, having those conversations with yeah. people and it's inspiring to see their faith and their interest and also too like it's not so foreign from our experiences here there was one family who lived around the corner from the seminary Uh and both parents were involved in the parish and the kid was at all of our stuff all our missions all of our retreats and he's like i would i'm thinking about being a holy cross religious i'd like to get the application so i go to the house he's like my parents are a little bit cautious so i go to the house to talk to them i've talked to them dozens of times yeah and they're just like stone cold (laughs) and angry you're gonna steal our kid he's gonna be so far away i'm like it's around the corner right. <laughs> and I can see his sister in the corner She just laughing she's having right. the greatest time and I'm yeah. like under the gun here being interrogated yeah. <laughs> so it's all different things yeah. with that so it's a great way to learn and to start off I miss that community a lot. They taught me a lot, and at least that community, and maybe we could say even Mexican culture in general, just so relational, and so warm yeah, right. um, It is hard to then leave to be there for three years so people pour their hearts out and really welcome you and uh, so I try to maintain contact as especially as I can. Mm-hmm. you know I've visited a couple of times since, and so we've talked about the vow of celibacy If you talk to some of the guys in Holy Cross, you say like, well what's the hardest vow?" And a lot will say obedience, yes. right? And it's yes. this, right? Needing to move on, to go where there's the most need. Mm-hmm. And it means saying goodbye or at least goodbye for now mm-hmm. to people you really care for and have walked with for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that I would imagine is, is so difficult because, as you mentioned, whether it's in a restaurant or in a parish setting near someone's home, there is something about people are comfortable around priests that they open up so quickly and you get to know people at a depth very fast that you might not otherwise be invited into that conversation, and yet you have to hand them on to the next person who's coming to minister to them and and let go of some of those relationships yourself. I imagine that is that is quite a challenge.
1: It is a big challenge. Uh, one of the parts of Scripture that really gives me support in that, I believe it's Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthian church is kind of fighting because Paul has brought the gospel to some of them. Apollos, another Christian evangelist, had brought it to others. Mm. They're fighting, like, well, what's the real deal? Like, who's yeah, better, right? right? And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, look, I kind of came and planted a seed. Apollos, he came and watered. But let's not forget that, like, it's God that's causing this growth. Right? That's right. what's all underlying this whole project. And so if I have a chance to plant a seed, I need to have the detachment to walk away and know that God's going to have someone else there, Apollos or otherwise, mm-hmm. to help to continue this growth. I think that helps us as ministers, lay and ordained, even in different roles. I can see teachers doing this. If you're a second grade teacher, you're probably not going to teach third grade. Sure. You're having that uh, trust in God that those people you love are going to be okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. And even parents, eventually, right? That's you true. have to let them, yeah. let them go and let them live. So. What was next for you after you came back from Mexico? Kind of that call of obedience asked you to, to leave.
1: Where where were you asked to go? So this is an interesting thing, I think. I have always had a passion for history. I mentioned that, talking about being in Spain and kind of always been there. So I was really intrigued about you know, maybe teaching history at the university level. So one of my interests is Latin American history, especially the spread of Christianity in Mexico. So I found this figure. He was a Franciscan brother. He had been born into luxury I believe, cousin of the Holy Roman Emperor, a student of the Pope, and mm. he was one of the first to come from Europe to Mexico, and in the second wave after Hernan Cortes, he had a call for help. And he was a religious brother, so he couldn't say mass, he did those things, he was super well educated, huh. and he went among the indigenous people, learned their language, first of all, and then used his training in art and music and architecture to convey the Christian message in ways that were beautiful and attractive and connected with them in ways that they could readily understand. And that gentleman's name is Ray Pedro de Gante and uh, Peter of Ghent in English. And so he had this amazing ministry, you know, kind of from, again, from the ground up. And I wanted to write about that and, I, and draw a connection to today. As we evangelize, we can't just resort to just saying, well, that's the way it is, or God forbid, use force as had mm-hmm. happened in previous generations. Mm-hmm. I think we have to convey the Christian message with its beauty in ways people can understand. So obviously, it's still a project I'm interested in and felt like, well, maybe I should pursue this. And the community was all about that. Okay. So I came to Notre Dame to do a year of preparation for advanced studies. And I took classes in history along with the first year PhD students. And people were very gracious with that. I learned a lot. I figured out pretty quickly. Again, it was kind of like that time my junior year, like this wasn't where I was right, called all yeah. the oh, time. Okay. Learned that, and if this is a passion, but not a full-time kind of career for the rest of my days. Mm-hmm. So that took some humility to, again to say like, yeah, I'm not sure this is where it's at and my pro- provincial and the rest of my superiors were very understanding. I think we've had some guys who try to gut out PhD work and other things and it's it's just not flourishing for anybody. Yeah, yeah. And so they said, "All right, if you've come to this decision, you've talked to your spiritual director, you've talked to friends, we're on board. That's fine. That's why we have this bridge here to think about it, right?" Sure. They said, "What else are you interested in doing?" And I explained to them what I explained to you all, like the dorm, the residence hall had such an impact in my life. Yeah. I would love to be a rector. And they said, well, we need rectors too. And so I had a chance to go to Carroll Hall to be a rector. I thought I'd be there for all of my days. <laughs> and uh, about three-quarters of the way through, uh, Dan and I are classmates from the Master of Divinity program. Right. And one of our other classmates who worked in that office came and asked me to go out to dinner, you know, for work. Sure. And I thought we were just going to get a nice dinner. And she said, well, we're opening a new residence hall. Like, huh. well, congratulations. Good yeah. for you. Right? So she's like, no, no, no. I'm here to ask you if you would do that. Right, like, right. What are you talking about? <laughs> so uh, we laughed and I thought about it and prayed about it. And so this would be like internal to the Holy Cross at Notre Dame world, not really coming from the provincial, but he was on board too. And as much as I, you know, was torn, I didn't want to leave these guys in Carroll Hall who I cared for. They explained to me that at least the way that model was going to work was going to be a place where men from across campus, who perhaps didn't have the greatest of all university experiences in their residence hall, mm-hmm. We're going to be able to have a chance to start over. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that really spoke to me. Yeah. You know, these are some guys who are on the edges, on the margins in a mm-hmm. lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would hate for anybody to leave Notre Dame without the kind of community that I experienced in St. Yeah. Edwards Hall. Yeah. We had a chance to build that from the ground up. So I said yes. And went in there, we got to design our mascot, pick our colors, our motto. And, you know, it was just a privileged position to take the best of the different residence hall communities and leave behind some of the things we didn't want to have. Right. So to build this great community. And I would say two things with that. The first is it, it was true. These these men had come from all over campus from different backgrounds. So um, there were a number of guys who are international students and so sort to of have a place where they could, you know, come with friends and also spread out and meet other people. There are a number of men who are homosexual, and mm. just to know that this is a place where they were, they were founders with everybody else, this mm-hmm. equal footing, mm-hmm. and, and they were going to be loved no matter what, which I think is true everywhere, sure. but if you're starting fresh, yeah. it's just yeah. a new opportunity. And we were able to do that, guys from different faith backgrounds, all these differences, this beautiful, I mean, we talk about mosaics a lot, but it was that, it created this great mm-hmm. community of mm-hmm. welcome and diverse strengths. I think we were stronger because of all the different mm-hmm. aspects we mm-hmm. had. It was a great opportunity for that. So that was a beauty which I'm really glad to have been a part of. The other thing I'll say, too, the family who, who gave the gift for the hall, Jimmy and Susan Dunn, just amazing people. Yeah. And what they wanted to do with that, it's on the dedication plaque, is really to pass on the gift that Jimmy had received in Alumni Hall when he was an undergraduate. So the picture there is Jimmy, Mr. Dunn, and his four friends from college, his mm. four college roommates, the five wow. of them. There's a picture of them from, I, I believe it's the 70s. They've got long hair and everything. <laughs> and there's a picture of them from 2016 when the Hall was founded. They're still close friends. And but not as much hair. Not as much hair.
0: <laughs> and,
1: uh, you know, it just says what we experience, we want for everybody else in this community. And, you know, it was really, it was really moving. A couple of years ago, Mr. Jim Martin, one of the friends, he, he died of cancer. Mm. And uh, it was just so moving to see the other four as his pallbearers at his funeral, mm. right? From college to the end of their days, and they, you know, they look out for his widow and his kids, right? It's very real, like yeah. what, what we try to build at Notre Dame, and that's yeah. just a, a great example. I couldn't have asked for a better model for my guys in Dunn Hall to, uh, to, look, to aspire to mm-hmm. and to see, like, this is what you're, you're offered here at Notre Dame. You're gonna get a great education, but in your residence hall, in the friends you meet, the people you work with, you're gonna form some lifelong friendships.
0: Yeah. And I think it's such a blessing and privilege to be a part of that in, in your role as a rector to think about, again, you're not going to live with these young men for uh, years and years and years, but to be there at the beginning of something and to help nurture that with the bonds of faith. Certainly. So you did that for a few years, and, but then uh, were again called to, to something
1: else. How did, how did all that come about? Right. So I think it was in my third year in the dorm in Dunhall. So my fourth year as a rector, just loving it. And I had, you know, had expectations as a rector once I got kind of my feet under me to take on some other stuff on the side. And I had done vocation work in my first couple of years. I taught a class, actually two classes along the way. But I thought initially like, oh, I had that summer service experience with the Center for Social Concerns. Sure. I would love to do that as my second... Assignment, you know, yeah. as a rector. And I had had so many great experiences, I hadn't had a chance to even do that yet, right? So I was looking to be a rector for years to come. And in my third year in Dunhall, the provincial asked, you know, what do you think is next? And I said, well, of course, to be a rector, right? We yeah. need this. That's what we talked about. Sure. He said, yes, we do. And we also need guys in the Holy Cross who are going to be able to multiply that effort, explain it to others, advocate for, and continue to, to build it up. And we need people in student affairs. Mm-hmm. And if, if I like student affairs so much, working with young adults, which I do. Maybe I should look at getting a degree to get some more skills with that, to be mm-hmm. able to lend even more to the ministry at Notre Dame or any of our six colleges across the U.S. And sure. Holy Cross, we have lots of needs, and they all sure. have student life, student affairs. So, you know, it, it took some praying, and some discernment over, it, but it made a lot of sense, mm-hmm. right? I want to have the best Holy Cross religious, religious sisters, laymen and women in our halls for our students at all of our colleges and universities. So that made a lot of sense. Obviously, I had to leave the hall, but willing to do it. And, you know, it was great the way it worked out, though. He said, if you know, this is our goal. Keep that out there. I want you to investigate the programs, the degrees you might do. So PhD, MBA, JD, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked at all those things. And the law really made the most sense. It's a very flexible degree. It's a terminal degree. It's one where you get expertise in a lot of different areas. But really, that means it helps you to tackle complex problems, mm-hmm. to think through difficult issues. Mm-hmm. And not to mention so much of our students' lives for good and ill is wrapped up in the law. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly opportunities to exercise our freedoms and respect each other, make sure those guarantees are there. But also too, there are tragedies of you know the sad s- situations of the Title IX sexual assault and harassment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm situations, now balancing for our student athletes, their name, image, and likeness rights, other rights that continue to develop mm-hmm. for them, liability around many different parts of our students' lives. And we have wonderful attorneys and risk managers here at Notre Dame. I think our general counsel's office is just so incredible. And a lot of times when I was a rector, there would be policies or, or decisions that were made, and I, d- I couldn't understand. Yeah. I didn't speak that language. And I do think that, uh, again, all these attorneys are here because of our mission but perhaps as a priest and Holy Cross religious, I have a special role to help to inform them as well. And, and we pay them to be cautious, right? Yeah. And so I, my dream, I guess, is to be a bridge between those worlds so we can strive together to mitigate that risk, to keep our, our student staff faculty safe, of course, and to also achieve our mission. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what I, I really have seen that amongst our general counsel, other attorneys here, and want to be a part of that, probably from the student affairs kind of side. And mm-hmm. I mean this for all of our colleges sure. and Holy Cross. But to be able to come together to make that happen, if, if there's a mission goal, how do we do it well and safely, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a dream with that, too. So that's where that was. He said, yep, yeah, that's great. Apply broadly. I applied across the country. I was looking at places where I could maybe live in community. Okay. Play is all over this country, so that was great. Didn't get into a lot of places. Got into other places. Mm-hmm. And Notre Dame made so much sense. Just the crossroads of faith and education administration and the law. You know, we talk about being a different kind of lawyer Mm -hmm. at Notre Dame Law School, and it's so true. Uh, It's such a community here as well, where I've worked with experts in religious liberty and civil rights. I'm in an immigration class right now. I'd like to do that this summer coming Mm up. It's just been one great experience after the next with really bright people from different faith traditions as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And just seeing that where at Notre Dame, your faith is gonna be, and what you value, is gonna be taken seriously. You can implement that in your legal education and then outside his support, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a wonderful community.
0: Now I've known some Holy Cross priests who have their law degree. Maybe they got that and then felt the call to the priesthood later. But you are a religious, you know, Holy Cross priest in law school. What do you think that experience is like for your classmates and for you to to uh, be established in that way in in kind of the big uh, portion of your vocation, but still pursuing this the secondary vocation as as a lawyer.
1: Right. I don't hide that I'm a priest at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is my ministry assignment for right now, my job. Yeah. So when I go to work, I wear my collar, right? right? And I'm very obviously, visibly a priest. And at the same time, I don't want that to be somehow intimidating or, uh, I don't know, off-putting It not the word, but I just want it to engage academically and intellectually. Most of our professors are, I've known them even too, so trying to maintain that balance is important, but needing to be challenged, right? I don't want any deference or special privilege or whatever, just to dive in. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Like, I don't know anything about the law, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so whether it's a classmate or with a professor or whatnot. And they've been wonderful about that. Understanding, challenging, very respectful and fascinated by what I'm doing. So we have a lot of great conversations. uh, And that's just been a really great thing. So to be a peer with my classmates has been a real gift. And to talk to them who are from very similar faith or otherwise life experiences or very different has been really a great opportunity as well. I know just wearing that collar comes with a lot of other baggage, if you will, for mm-hmm. people in different ways. Mm-hmm. They may expect me to say one thing or another, which are maybe totally opposite, right, <laughs> depending on who the person is. Yeah. And trying to be very human and explain our faith to people and not be a caricature, I think, is important. Be very welcoming to help nuance mm-hmm. views. And again, acknowledging like, look, we're all coming at this. It's our first year in law school. Nobody has been in law school before. Uh-huh. We're coming at this together. And last year, we continue to be in the pandemic, but the more restriction, the more severe restrictions last year, going through that together, uh, supporting each other emotionally and as peers. But again, acknowledging I'm not the chaplain of the law school, mm-hmm. right? We do have those resources. So there were, I think, a lot of natural conversations where people said, oh, Father man, he's a priest. Like, I'm going to go to him. And then I, I listened and was there as much as was appropriate and said, you know, let's talk to our chaplain. Let's talk to folks at the University Counseling Center, our own care consultant in the law school, our own dedicated person. She's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So connecting them to those resources, I think that was that was the right balance. And I love our residence halls. And I, I'm actually living in Moreau Seminary way across the lake right uh-huh. now. And that was important, too, to have a little bit of space from my previous ministry, lest my heart i just couldn't say no right yeah yeah to say masses and give talks or whatever sure so this has been a great balance between that and going through and i hope it's a, an important witness to people like i saw with those jesuit priests and holy cross priests that you're saying mass I, I didn't do mass i didn't say mass at the law school my first year i do once a week now okay so they see my sacramental ministry that i help out in town at a parish every week sure they see that but they also see me in the classroom mm-hmm. they see that there's There are lots of ways to be a priest, and Holy Cross religious serve in many ways.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. We've touched on the vows of chastity and obedience. What about poverty? What has been your understanding of poverty and, and kind of living that vow of poverty as a Holy Cross priest and religious?
1: Yeah, I think that we are so blessed in Holy Cross that we have what we need. And we also have inherited in a lot of ways. You know, good facilities mm-hmm. and through the generous benefaction of donors are able to, you know, do things like what I'm doing, getting an advanced degree or studying in the seminary. So, so blessed with that. And, you know, I, I, since I was pretty young, I've liked to live pretty simply. And so that was just an attraction. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, there's, there are definitely times where you're like, you wish you could go and, and visit a friend across the country, but like the, the flight's not in the budget. But I mean, everybody deals with that. Sure. I think. Yeah. Most families right. deal with that. And I think that's really important. It was good for me when I lived in Mexico, for example, to you know basically live like the community in our neighborhood lived. And now mm-hmm. we had more cars than they had. But we had more people living there. And I did have an air conditioner. Not everybody had air conditioning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the cockroaches were the same. The heat was <laughs> the same. The traffic, the noise. Like It wasn't like we lived in some kind of resort compound away from everybody. Uh-huh. That was such a, an important experience, one that wasn't always pleasant. I didn't always thank God for that part. Right? It was <laughs> difficult. But I did thank God that our vow calls us to that and really insists that we do that well and yeah i've just been so grateful for that part
0: Mm -hmm. you've been a priest for a number of years now how has your understanding of priesthood changed from when you were when the members of the community were putting their hands on you that day of the uh, of your ordination to now your understanding of yourself as a priest
1: Yeah, I think I have a lot of humility, just what it takes in any vocation to stay faithful to your vows and your commitments that you've made, knowing that that takes a lot of hard work and honesty with yourself, checking in with people, like spiritual direction, a faith sharing group, some accountability kind of resources right there. There's a great movie called *Keeping the Faith*. Are you aware of this movie? Uh-huh, I've heard. It's yeah. got Ben Stiller. He's a rabbi, <laughs> right. and uh, Edward Norton. He's a priest, and their friend Jenna Elfman. They both fall in love with her, right? Just, <laughs> it's like they start off going into a bar. It's a great, right, it's right, a great right, joke, right? right? Yeah. But it's a wonderful movie. And you know what? The Edward Norton character, the Catholic priest, like I said, falls in love with this woman. He, you know, has been friends with a long time, and he goes to the pastor. And he's like, "Have you like this is nuts? Like this could never happen. Like what's going on? What's wrong with me?" Right? Mm. And the pastor said, "Oh, you know, I." fall in love once a decade or something to okay, that effect yeah. right but he says he has to keep making this commitment and as i've talked to my friends now like i've been ordained 10 years some of our friends have been married at least as long sure. much longer some sure and you, you do have to keep making this commitment and you are gonna find yourself attracted to other people and you know home life might not be this like shining thing you you once thought it was right but you have to keep reevaluating and, yeah. and going back to what gave you life and 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 gives you strength in that and, and why you made this commitment and, mm-hmm. and where you find joy in it so going through those hard times too those difficult times of what am i doing here and you know why did i come here in the first place and that's mm-hmm. been really important to do so that humility is very important to not you know, i suppose like at the beginning you just like I kind of want to save the world right? yeah yeah and certainly feel zeal and passion for the apostolate but with a maybe a more realistic sense of things and certainly not giving yourself a pass, but taking it easy on yourself, like not beating yourself up too much, knowing that we all need God's mercy and strength and the support, at least in Holy Cross, with my brothers, mm-hmm. and my community. And that carries me through a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. To recommit to those vows really on a daily basis. I mean, there's times where you renew those vows, you know, ceremonially, ceremonially and such, but to live those vows on a daily basis, I think is is the call for all of us as we, as we discover those vocations. And we have models of holiness, of course, that have shown us the way that we can know of their lives and their struggles, whether they're people we know personally or or saints that we read about, those kinds of things. Who have been some of the models of holiness for you that you really cling to as examples?
1: Yeah, I think like when I grew up, we were in a pretty privileged place that John Paul II, St. John Paul II was on the news all the time, like sure. beating communism, right? <laughs> And he had been, you know, like a a super athlete as a skier and was a talented actor. And Mother Teresa, too, who had left behind a very comfortable life to be amongst the poorest of the poor and had beautiful words of wisdom. Like these great people who are on the world stage, Catholics, right? Certainly looked up to them as models of holiness. I think, though, as I go through my day, I really am more called to models of holiness that just are day by day and a little bit more subtle Mm -hmm. than that. Mm -hmm. One Blessed, who I really look up to, is Franz Jägerstatter. Sure. Uh, he was a, a, a dis, he, he objected to joining the, the Austrian military, I believe, but he was part of the Nazi regime in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a conscientious objector, would not fight, and just had this commitment to his faith. And he had been in the army before. It wasn't like he was against any conflict, but this particular cause he just couldn't participate in. He is a dad and a husband. And there's a, actually a nice movie, too, that yeah. came out recently about his life, which is a great example of it. But just that, I don't know, very very humble. Like, he wasn't on a a stage in a big way people could see, right? Mm -hmm. But he was committed to this, and his wife supported him as hard as it was for both of them, their kids. But I look to that as this, like, day-by-day example and how I really articulate that, where I see it, even amongst people who I'm so blessed to have in my life, friends, family, when people are able to really look for the need of the other, right? Mm -hmm. Just, like, almost their first thought is of the other person how they're going to be affected what they need what they might be able to offer this third person right that's just holiness in my mind what i, I strive to do i know i'm not great at it and need help it's a, a lifelong kind of process of getting there mm-hmm. and there's a there's a downside there's a potential downside of someone is just like not taking care of themselves sure thinks sure. less of themselves that's not what i'm saying i'm saying that from that space of knowing that god loves you and knowing that you have many gifts trying to look for the need of the other before you serve yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see as holiness and what you know I really look up to and, and, and would really strive for. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I love that line of your parents of for those who don't have enough. And there's certainly the material poverty and things like that. But there's also the acknowledgement that all of us, we're all incomplete without God's love. and And in some ways, no one has enough without God. And part of the I think the example of, of holy living is to help share that love of God and to help people even realize what that, what that hole in their heart is about. So for you, in trying to live a holy life in your particular vocation as a Holy Cross priest, possibly as a you know, future attorney and, and professional in that way in, in higher education, what are some effective methods for you of, of maintaining and
1: cultivating a holy life? I think community is just my way to do that. I would not feel called to a diocesan life where I'd mostly be living on my own, though there are other examples. Or even in marriage, you know, there's another set of supports there, a single mm-hmm. life, right? Mm-hmm. In my communal life, like that's where I find this accountability and this inspiration, the strength. So that means so once a month I go away to our little retreat house, five or six Holy Cross Religious, and we talk about what's on our minds, what's been a joy in the last month, what's been a struggle. Uh, what we Maybe we have a, a theme for the night, mm-hmm. kind of talk about one of the vows or one aspect of ministry. That's very important. Cook a meal together and just spend that time, right? That's very important. I mentioned spiritual direction as well. Having somebody you can talk to. My spiritual director is a Holy Cross sister from across the street here at St. Mary's College. And she's in her 80s and has seen a lot. and (laughs) is a wonderful person who pushes me and listens to. And and we help, or she helps me to hear what God is saying in my heart and to see where God is moving in my life. Those are really important things. And, you know, the sacrament of confession, too, just to recognize my own frailty and need for God's mercy. Mm -hmm. That's a huge part to stay on the path to holiness. And I think, too, so... Really, the, the primary goal of Holy Cross, I would have thought, making God known, loved, and served, and sure. serving in parishes, mission, and, and education, all these w- wonderful things we do with our charism. But the first purpose is for the sanctification, the holiness of its members. Yeah. Right? So by that, I, I've come to understand our constitutions which guide us, which are poetry and prayer. Oh, and oh, my gosh. Yeah. They lay out a hope and some guidelines, some expectations there that we will gather for eucharist together every day we'll pray the liturgy of the hours um that we share a devotion to our blessed mother and that communal time especially in meals and recreation is vital and should, should be the norm unless there's something extreme that pulls us away so by living that out which i promised right in my right. final <laughs> vows to do forever you know just trusting in that 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 plan this life that's been developed that i've inherited i've been so blessed to just kind of been handed to me mm. So by, by being faithful to that, I, see, I get that support that I need. Others have other ways to live that out, of course, but for me, these rules of life in Holy Cross help me to strive for that holiness.
0: Mm. Well, thanks. Yeah, I think knowing where that source and guidance is coming from is, is a really important step for all of us. And I hope that for a number in the audience that Faith in D can be part of that role and, of course, is, is part of what we're trying to do in helping people continue to cultivate to cultivate faith in their lives. Well, Father Matt, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today and share your life and vocation with our audience, especially as we're getting here towards the end of the semester and things are picking up. But it's really been a joy to talk to you, and and I'm excited to share this with with the wider audience.
1: Thank you, Dan. It's been wonderful. And may God bless all those who are listening. And if you have an extra prayer, say a prayer for the law school students as we (laughs) start to get to these end of the semester days. Thank you.
0: We certainly will. Well, that concludes this episode and season of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indeed podcast. Of course, we would invite you to rate the podcast and share it with anyone who might appreciate these stories. And go back if you've missed any episodes. We're six seasons in now, and so there's lots of beautiful stories for you to find and listen to and be inspired by and uh, just to be a part of that. And as always, if you haven't yet or want to invite others to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection at Faith. .nd.edu slash sign up. We'd welcome you to do that. Until next time and next season, you'll be in our prayers. God bless.